0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now, coming at you one more time remotely here on a rainy day in New York. When this crisis started to break out, I had a lot of thoughts for what to do with Rolling Stone Music Now, and uh, hopefully we'll still find some fun things to do, but it seems like we are grappling with a bunch of obituaries. Today we're going to be talking about two legends, Bill Withers and John Prine. We're going to start with Bill Withers. We have some pretty amazing audio from... Andy Green's interview with Bill Withers. And Bill died from heart problems. It had nothing to do with COVID, correct, Andy?
1: Yes. Yes, indeed.
0: Now, Bill Withers was a unique figure for a lot of reasons. He started his career in his 30s after he'd already kind of worked blue-collar jobs. And then he quit his career after some amazing success. And you spent a bunch of time with him a few years ago, and, and that's the interview we're going to hear. What was it like to, to go up there? What, what was your time
1: with him like? I It was great being with him. I'm a big fan, and he's never done much press. So to be in his presence, it was first a, a bit intimidating, but he was very warm and very honest and very funny and full of surprises. I mean, he talked to me a lot about loving the Big Bang Theory. you know. <laughs> so, so we go back and forth between talking about sitcoms, and talking about all the intense racism that he experienced during his career. So it was a lot. He was an amazing guy to talk to.
0: Now, what was the real reason behind his his long break from the music industry? Was part of it because he was so frustrated with his struggles at his label?
1: Yeah, he started on a small indie label that's called Sussex, and he had complete control there. But they went bankrupt, and he went to Columbia in 1975 and they were like a, you know they were a huge organization and there were all of these A&R guys there and they made his life miserable and they pushed him to be more black as he put it to put horns on his songs and these long funky intros and he hated it he was miserable and he hated the industry and he would rather quit than be a part of it basically
0: yeah he had these nerdy white guys telling him how to be black basically it's kind of a horrifying Situation.
1: Yeah, it was horrifying. And his stories, they were harrowing. And he also made a ton of money because he wrote all of his own songs. So he owns Lean on Me, you know, which is in a million movies. And he bought all this real estate around LA in the 70s. And, you know, he lived in this giant house in the hills. So he was very comfortable and the final reason to, to keep working.
0: He was an interesting songwriter, an interesting artist. In part, he kind of reminded me of James Taylor. He was not working. As much as he was seen as an R&B guy, and he was an R&B guy, I don't think he was in, so was James Taylor in a way. I feel like they were actually as close to each other as, as any two artists in the 70s, if you know what I mean.
2: Yeah,
1: I think that's fair, that they both fused genres in very, in very interesting ways. And they wrote great songs that were drawn out of their life experiences, and some pretty intense ones too.
0: And Questlove, who just wrote a great new appreciation of him for Rolling Stone, that's going to be in our next issue and online, kind of compared him to Bruce Springsteen and said he was kind of like, uh, for, for black people in America, he was this kind of a working man's hero. He, he wasn't unearthly like a Michael Jackson or, or something like that. He, he really was just a workaday genius.
1: What's funny is Springsteen, he sort of haunted him that when he got on Columbia, it was right when Born to Run was taking off and the executives there, they were so focused on Springsteen that he felt that he was getting, you know, like not much attention.
0: Yeah, that's, I'm sure Bruce is not super happy about that if you heard about that. But let's hear Andy Green's meeting with Bill Withers. Set the scene a little bit for what uh, what you guys were doing when, when you guys were talking at this point. Where were you?
1: Sure. It was 2015. He was a few months away from being inducted in the Hall of Fame, which was a huge throw for him. And the first day I just sat with him at his house for hours and we talked. It was very casual. We got dinner at, at a restaurant. And this was day two where I sat down with him and conducted a real formal interview. And where were you? We were like in his living room at his house.
0: All right, let's hear Andy Green and the late, great Bill Withers.
1: Are you still working at your your job while you're recording the album? My first
3: album cover was taken on my lunch break at my job. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm standing there with a lunch bucket and whatever, you know. Did you tell your coworkers what was happening,
1: that you were making an album?
3: Well, they knew I was doing something, so they they were making fun of me. They
1: thought it was, you know, a joke or something. Mm -hmm. Did you record by night or on the weekends? Or how did it work? At night, you know. Mm -hmm and he gave you you know it was Booker T. Jones was a great producer it was great it was great musicians they obviously thought that that, uh, this could really be something they gave you top 8 talent to work on the album with you right that was the Al
3: Bell influence Mm -hmm. Clarence was friends with Al Bell because I think he had approached people like Bones Howe and people like that Mm -hmm. and nobody wanted to work with me so I think Al Bell sent Booker T. and them out here I, th- I think Stephen Stills was just walking down the hallway and Booker asked him if he would come in and play.
1: Wow. So how did you feel in the studio when you're with Stephen Stills and Booker T. Jones and all these superstars? Were you intimidated at all? Or just how did that feel? No, you've got to understand,
3: my job as a singer is to lead the band. So if you don't have confidence enough to step up right. front, you know, singing is generally not a background instrument. Right. Yeah. So there's a certain, there's a certain trepidation. Uh, I was very fortunate in that Graham Nash, I never will forget him, I will always love him for that. He came and sat down in front of me and he said, you don't know how good you are. And he was very encouraging to me. He sat right in front of me. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I was happy to be, you know, to be that. But I had to get over that very quickly because you figure we're doing my songs. I'm the lead instrument on this thing, so I got to get over whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. I got to play. Right. You know, it's like that guy that intercepted that pass to win the Super Bowl. Right. I'm sure he was, because I was new for him, he was a rookie, but hats off to him because he knew in his mind, I got to play.
1: Right. Yeah, and there are split seconds that can change your life. You make one yeah. mo- one decision in a moment, and yeah. you win the Super Bowl. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah.
3: So once somebody throws you in, you know, and it was funny because nobody on my job, if I told them, if I'm mid you don't know those guys. <laughs> but I had to put that aside because, first of all, you have to be brave enough to say, okay, everybody, I got this song. We're going to play this song that I wrote. Well, there just once you're seated in the back, right there, you automatically thrust yourself to the front. Mm-hmm. And courage is not not being afraid. It's what do you do when you're afraid? So you got to
1: get over that and play. Right. Do you recall writing Ain't No Sunshine"? How that how that title, that image, got into your head? What led to that? And I
3: was watching TV, at "Days of Wine and Roses" or something, and somehow or another. This interplay between Lee Remick and Jack Lemmon, the, you know, the back and forth and, mm-hmm. you know, so things cross your mind. To me, that's what songwriting is. Something crosses your mind. Mm-hmm. For me. Did you keep a notebook back then, of lyrics, or how did you sort of work? My thing has always been, if it's not worth remembering, it's not worth much. Wow. Because if you think something has value, you don't
1: forget it. Right. So, and you had just learned how to play guitar, like, not that long before this, right? Or is that correct? I never learned
3: I still don't know how to play the guitar. But I have ears, so I know that if I touch this and touch that and touch the other, mm-hmm. I keep touching stuff until it sounds good to me. Mm-hmm. When I made enough money, I bought a piano, and I went and I started going up and down there, was lean on me. So you don't have to be a virtuoso on the thing to write a song, you know. Right. If we got up now and you put a harp in here. Yeah. And I don't know anything about a harp. Mm-hmm. If I wanted a song from mm-hmm. that harp, mm-hmm. within the next hour or so, I would figure out a way to do it. I don't have to be able to play the whole, you know,
1: Yeah.
3: in an orchestra. Right. Because the instrument is the lead instrument, which is the voice, you know what I
1: mean? Right. And with "Ain't No Sunshine," it sort of starts on your voice. It starts a cappella, right? I mean, it's, yeah. And was that your idea to do that to sort of start that?
3: It's just the way I did it, you know. It's the way. It's the way I felt it.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, I don't have this great analytical thing. I, I'm not burdened by. That's why it was funny when I went to a larger record companies, and the A and R guys which I have dubbed antagonistic and redundant. My good friend Bobby Columbia says, A&R stands for always wrong. Well, that just shows Bobby can't spell. (laughs) So uh, they have these standard questions they would ask. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: How long is the intro? Are you going to put any horns on it? And up to that point, my whole career started with no intro and no horns, you know, so I, I decided they were, you know. Right. So I was glad that I had that beginning over here with this organic, mm-hmm. smaller company
1: where people, you know. Right. So did the first album, when it took off, did you quit your job immediately or how long did you keep working at your job?
3: No, well, the job was gone. It was... I had been laid off. It's aerospace industry. Right. Uh So I got two letters on the same day, one to come back to my job, and the other one from the Johnny, asking if I would come on the Johnny Carson show. Wow. And you went on Carson? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't have that personality to where I get, you know. I'm not the guy that jumps up and starts running around the road. At the end of the game, you know. But I'm
1: sure it's. watch the game. And yeah, but I'm sure it's gratifying to hear your music on the radio and get invited on Carson. And everything that must have been. Well, necessary. there's only two choices.
3: Mm-hmm. And the other is, as opposed to what? Not. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm not a cheerleader kind of guy. You know. So if somebody's waiting for me to go, oh, I'm so excited! Right. Forget about it. I'm not. I'm not built that way. I don't have that gene. Mm-hmm. So, how did your life change when you when your career took off? You changed jobs mm-hmm. change jobs things the obvious things change you know the requirements on you changes mm-hmm. your income changes your you know how people look at you changes uh-huh those are pretty standard changes. Were you happier? No, I was really pissed off. I got a hit record
1: <laughs> uh, you know. Didn't were you really fulfilled by all this? But was this what you always wanted? Were you, you know? Well, there's only two choices. Yeah. You're either fulfilled or mm-hmm. you're not.
3: Right. It's an obvious, mm-hmm. you know. Like I say, I'm not that cheerleader guy. Right. That's going to jump up and run around the room or.
1: Right. Right. Know. But I,
3: I'm sure inside it felt good,
1: right? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. I don't do touchdown dances, you know. Right. I pursue something and hopefully. You know, you pursue something out of optimism, or at least I do. Mm-hmm. Well, if you pursue something out of optimism, you can't be totally shocked if it happens, you know? Right. So, you relieved, you know,
1: you're relieved. Mm-hmm. So, with Lean On Me, that was written on the piano, right? Just sort of when you first started learning yeah, piano. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember what's put you in that frame of mind, too, or sign like about friendship? What sort of sparked that? I don't know. Like
3: I said, yeah. I walk around and things cross my mind. Mm -hmm. I try not to be too analytical about it because it wouldn't be magic anymore, you know.
1: If I figured out how I do it. Yeah, but are you able to recall sitting down and first sort of figuring out those parts on piano? Can you visualize that moment in your life? There's nothing to figure out. I didn't
3: change fingers. I just went one, two, three, four, up and down the piano. Mm -hmm. A lot of children Come up and say that's the first song I learned to play, and I was there. I'm thinking like, well, don't congratulate yourself. That's
1: pretty <laughs> easy, you know. You can make a tool and play that, you know. Right, but after it was finished, did you see it as a special song that might really resonate? I don't remember
3: any song that I've ever finished that I didn't think was a special song.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Whether other people see it that way is another thing. Right. You can get some drug addict, and if he comes up and he starts singing you this song he wrote, he thinks it's a special song. Right.
1: People who write songs always think it's a special song. Right. So you didn't see it as something that was sort of a different kind of thing that really could have been a radio hit or anything, didn't strike you as something that could really work on radio? No, I think... uh, I
3: think the guys at the record company, Ron Mosley and Clarence Avant and those guys, they thought it was more. They singled it out. Mm -hmm. And there was a disc jockey up there named Rick Holmes, and he was singling it out. And I thought, well, you know, they seem to gravitate towards that. Mm -hmm. But each thing, I think, has its own challenge, you know. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you can't be on both ends of it. Right. you You know, you can't be on both ends of everything.
1: Mm-hmm. So, after your first few hits, did you feel any pressure to follow them up with more hits? Did you feel there was sort of that spotlight on you had grown bigger and you had to sort of had to keep delivering the goods? Was there pressure on you? No.
3: After my first few hits, the pressure on me was my goddamn record company's going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And now I gotta go find a new place. Yeah. So there was all that Michigan. you know. Right. So I didn't have the luxury of you know ruminating on all that. Right. right. I went through the trauma of a company going out of business.
1: So then you signed to to like Columbia in '75, right? Yeah. And that didn't go as well as you hoped. That was more. That was.
3: Well, it was a, it was a new environment for me. Mm-hmm. It was a new environment for me. Where before I was. Basically left to, you know, people waited to see what I was going to do till I got to the point where there were people trying to tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a great baseball pitcher named Jim Palmer, Mm
1: -hmm.
3: a Hall of Fame guy, great pitcher, right? Mm -hmm. And he was saying about his manager that the only thing he knew about pitching was that he couldn't hit it. Mm -hmm. So then all of a sudden there's this new corporate situation with a whole bunch of A&R guys who had all tried to be some kind of artist. Right. And then they thought they knew, so thus came the questions. How long is the intro, or are you going to put any horns on it? I think you should cover some Elvis Presley songs or some dumb shit, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There were actually people trying to find songs for me. Right, when you're a songwriter. You You know, it's like buying a bartender a drink, you know.
1: Right. So it was all right. It was what it was, and I
3: was what I was. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, anywhere you get that's worthwhile, and this is kind of a pivotal time for me, some of it is because of, and some of it is in spite of. So I don't think about that stuff, man. Mm -hmm. I don't think about those people.
0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt. You're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. We just had Andy Green talking to the late Bill Withers. And unfortunately, it's a busy time for this kind of thing. We lost one of the most beloved songwriters of all time, John Prine, to complications of COVID-19. We have with us today Patrick Doyle, who got to know John Prine really well in the past few years and thought we'd have Patrick talk about what that was like, talk about Prime's importance, all that stuff. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. So tell me how you first met Prime. It was for a feature a few years ago. What went down?
2: Um, well, this was before he put out his last album, which was The Tree of Forgiveness, which kind of jumpstarted his career again. Um, so this was before that, it was It around 2016. And I just had been hearing his name a lot. Like I went to a deer tick show and they did a, a John Prine song and I just kind of wanted to know who he was. And I think Dylan gave a quote about him around the same time. And I had just heard him mentioned by a lot of great songwriters. So I just checked his music out and was pretty floored by it. It was a pretty crazy thing. I went home to Maine and, and for a, a funeral and, and Prine was playing that night. And I had never, never heard him before. So I went to the show and it just really kind of spoke to me, and and um, his songs he wrote songs like nobody else could write. Really, he wrote from the perspective of different different people that that didn't really have a voice in songs. You know, he wrote about people that he knew in the Midwest. He wrote from the perspective of of a woman on on Angel from Montgomery. He wrote about an old couple, and it was just just uh, completely different from any music I heard before. But it was also really simple. It sounded like standards, like like Hank Williams or or what he got through, or something. I just thought this guy was a genius. That seems um, to
0: be the the general consensus, really.
2: Yeah, he was, um, and he spoke like one. Everything he said was a a song. I actually I went down to spend time with him for the feature. And it was a little bit like work didn't know if they wanted to send me and it didn't seem super timely. It was sort of one of those long term projects that I mean, they they were interested, but people hadn't heard of, of Prime in a while. And he hadn't come out with that album. And I uh, just had so much fun spending time with him. I went down and we got meatloaf together. We went to his office, um, which was just this little store run out of uh, Nashville, um, a little home run out of uh, East Nashville, uh, Germantown neighborhood. And he it was this just this little home operation that they booked shows directly with the promoters. He uh, didn't was not on a major label, it was all done by his family. And that's the way he did business. And he um, sort of looked at his career kind of like a, a turtle, like it's just he goes slow and steady. But then that resulted in in a great career, because he he didn't never had a hit. But he said, because he never had a hit, he was sort of, uh, he wasn't frozen in time, so he was able to sort of, his songs were able to find relevance throughout, all, all over time. His song, Your Flag Decal Won't Get You Into Heaven Anymore, which he wrote back in 1971. A lot of people were saying on 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 YouTube, just replace the word flag decal with Make America Great Great Again hat, and the song works just as well. He was just a great person to spend time with and, and so much fun. We rode around in his Cadillac. We went into went to a record store and He tried to find his own record and couldn't find it because he was so obscure. He just made fun of all that. (laughs) He was just, he was a blast. It was like hanging out with Bob, like I think um, someone we work with said, who's from the Midwest said, it's like if Bob Dylan was your, your really cool neighbor. Who happened to be a genius. Yeah. who Who happened to be a genius. Yeah.
0: So take us through John Prine's story. He was known as a singing mailman at the beginning of his career, at least according to that headline that Roger Ebert put on the yeah. story he wrote about him early on.
2: Yeah, Prime grew up in, in uh, Maywood, Illinois, suburb of Chicago, and his uh, parents were from, uh, from Kentucky, so they actually really considered themselves Kentuckians. So they, they would go to these family reunions where they'd play bluegrass and that's how John really got exposed to that music. And his dad was a huge fan of Hank Williams and Jimmy Rogers. And John was really writing to impress his dad. Every he wrote that song "Paradise" about those family reunions, and he played it for his dad before the album came out. Um, and his dad cried, and that was the proudest moment of his career because he he said that he thought if he put his dad in a song, his dad would think he was as good as Hank Williams. Um, <laughs> so so um, he became a mailman because he, his grades were really bad he said his grades were real ugly was his the term he he put it. and so yeah. he became a mailman and he uh was not a good mailman he was a really bad mailman he said he said he would be out, out past dark fumbling through his his uh sack trying to find lighting to see the addresses because it took so long but he wrote a lot of songs on that mail route he would go into a little booth where they collected mail and he would write songs about the people he saw on the mail route, like um, the old couple, but one of the lonely old couples he, he, he uh, ran into, I think it was a conglomeration of people, but he wrote about those people in the song, Hello in There. And he wrote Angel from Montgomery about a kind of a, a lonely housewife who was trapped in a marriage and um these were people who weren't really getting songs written about them and and that's so when people like um Bonnie Raitt heard though she ended up covering Angel from Montgomery and uh really that became Prine's biggest hit and, and and kind of gave him a new a new life as an artist so he started writing those songs he started playing them very uh late i guess when he was like He'd been a songwriter for ten years, but had never played a played a show. But around uh, age twenty three or so, twenty four, he he played an open mic night, and everyone there was silent. And he thought the songs were terrible, but it turned out that they were just kind of stunned at at how uh, what he was writing about. Because he he went to the army before that and wrote Sam Stone, which is uh, a song about a veteran who gets addicted to to morphine and sort of comes back from he he comes back physically, but not mentally from the war and a lot of that was not being written about ptsd was not something being written about 1971 so roger ebert walked into one of those shows and he was floored by him he wrote a, he wrote a, an article called the singing mailman delivers the message and shortly after that Chris. i just, Chris wanted Popper, to, I just yeah. want
0: to stop on sam stone for a minute because that yeah has one of the probably one of the most famous couplets uh of the 70s there's
2: a hole
1: in daddy's arm where all the money goes
0: Uh, There's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose, Uh, which caused a lot of controversy when when he played it live to his sometimes country-leaning audience. And it's it's also like the way he sings it, because that's one of those things where I read about that line as with a lot of sort of critically regarded music. I read about it way before I heard it, you know what I mean? Because that was a very quoted line. And then it's so much better the way he sings it because of how tossed off it sounds, yeah, you, you know can't what I mean.
2: Write that. I tr- you try to write that line and it doesn't work.
0: Yeah. So he, you know, and it's also it's the line of a young songwriter who is in that moment of like no fear. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And who, who's looking for, who wants to like throw all of his talent in your face. Yeah, uh, and, and you don't write a line like that without knowing that it, it's going to get some attention, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But, that, but
0: yeah. Sorry. Go, go on with your, he said your he narrative. got a
2: lot of mail about that, that line. And he, even, even now, you know, people will write him and say, Mr. Prine, I love your lyrics, but I cannot, cannot <laughs> listen to that song. And even actually Johnny Cash covered Sam Stone and he, uh, he, but he had just written a religious book at the time. And he said to John, I cannot sing that line. <laughs> Jesus Christ died for nothing. I suppose. Can you write a different line for me? And John said, "You know, if it were any other artist, he would have said get lost." But it was his hero, Johnny Cash. So he said, "So," his crying suggested that he write a song. He said, "Well, you know, you're you you were close with your your daddy, right?" And John Johnny Cash said, "Yeah." And so then he said, "Well, write about that." So then instead of uh, Jesus. Christ died for nothing, I suppose. Johnny Cash wrote, uh, Daddy must have hurt, lot, hurt a lot back then, I suppose. <laughs> so he, and it's actually a great version of the song. It's on a live uh, Johnny Cash record in 1994 or something like that. I think,
0: I, I think it was your story where I read, and it's a great profile by Patrick Doyle. you have to check it out if you haven't read it. But Thanks. in your story I read, I think that's where I read it, this great thing where, where when Prine saw... Dylan and Johnny Cash performing together, or or listen to Nashville Skyline, whatever it was, he was yeah. like, "That's where I live. That's the thing yeah. I can do where those two meet." And I thought that was fascinating.
2: I know, and if you saw John live, that made total sense because he had sort of like a an old fifties Sun Records style rockabilly kind of band. Like he didn't. When I first saw him, he didn't even have a drummer. It was awesome. Wow. I mean, the drummer was awesome, but it was really cool to see him. Just like a stand-up bass and uh, guitar player, John Prine. Well,
0: it's interesting to put him in the context of the early seventies when he was seen as as a new Dylan, along with Springsteen and a few others. And, and when Springsteen paid tribute to him, he mentioned like they yeah. were sort of in the in the new Dylan club together. You know? and of course, there's that picture which we've talked about of Prine. Dylan and Springsteen, but Dylan and Springsteen are the one engaging, and Prine's kind of standing back, kind of smiling awkwardly. It was an interesting dynamic there.
2: Yeah, there's an amazing photo from backstage at the Rolling Thunder tour, and it's uh, Springsteen, Dylan, and Prine, and um, that that it's really interesting because, like, you know, we knew what was happening with Springsteen's career in what 1975 or 76, and um, Dylan's career and that photo was taken the day that John walked into Ahmet Erdogan's office and said, I don't want to be on your, your label Atlantic records anymore. Mm. Um, but yet, sorry, I, I jumped you ahead. Take us back no, to where you were no. in the narrative. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, so John uh, was, was, uh, was playing these clubs and Roger Ebert, you know, walked in and wrote that article and, and that really jumpstarted everything. And then of all people, uh, Chris Christopherson, who was, who was one of John's favorite songwriters, and Paul Anka, they, who were hanging out together, they came into the club. Steve Goodman, who was a, a really good friend of John's, convinced them both to come and see John play. Uh, and the club was 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 pretty much empty by that time. And John got up and played seven songs for them in a pretty much empty club. And, uh, and that's what Christopher said, it was like we were seeing Bob Dylan for the first time. They um, invited John back to hang out, eventually, um, Anka became his manager for a brief time, which didn't work out <laughs> exactly. They think Anka sued John and his new manager for about a million dollars. And John was um, freaking out. He was playing, he was playing at Lincoln center, I think for the first time. And they got a, a, a check from Paul Anka. I mean, a, a notice saying that he was being sued and uh, John was freaking out. And then John's new manager, Albanetta said, what do you mean? Why are you nervous? This means we're worth a million dollars. So, Christopherson and uh, Paul Anka walked into the club and they saw him play. They were floored by him. Um, Christopherson invited John on stage at the bitter end in New York. And it was um, Christopherson was like the hottest thing in music at the time. And so it was a, it was a big night for him to be playing this kind of tiny show in New York and all, you know, Atlantic records was there. Jerry Wexler was there. So, Prine, he brought uh, brought P- Prine on stage, and um, the next morning Jerry Wexler asked Prine to come to his office and offered him a contract with Atlantic Records. And um, Prine had been performing for just a few months; he was had just started showing his songs to to even his brother had never heard him write songs before that, um, and said that his talent came out of nowhere. He 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 had no idea that he had this talent, so it was. It was a just a complete. Uh, John said it was like a dream. Like he came to New York for the first time. Within 24 hours, he had a a contract with Atlantic Records, and all of a sudden, he was going to be the next the next one of the best uh, new people in music. So it was a it was a big deal for him. And and he was not an ambitious performer who who wanted to be on a major label. He was happy being a mailman, playing on weekends, and he made more money from, from playing than he did as a mailman. So he was just thrilled with that life. And one thing he said to me was that he feels like those songs that he wrote for that first album had like an innocence about them. And he was never able to get back to that place after he had success. And he put out an album that there was something about that that fearlessness that you talked about when he t- says that Sam Stone line, stuff like that. I mean, John wrote pretty much every song he put out is good and great. It's like, if you especially if you take away the production of a few of the 80s albums just those songs straight up acoustic they're all classics like he did not he was todd snyder was saying he's like the sturdiest guy like he did not put out anything bad which is you know the 80s were a dark decade for a lot of people but but anyway um he went on the road with like, you know, Bonnie Raid and, and Steve Goodman. He was, he became this kind of storyteller. He was nervous on stage. So he would have to tell a lot of stories in between to sort of um, get people laughing. And he said he needed to tell those stories and have some comedy in there because when he said a line like Jesus Christ die for nothing, I suppose it was much more impactful. You couldn't just come out and, and hit them over the head with, hmm. with heavy material all the time. So it was this balance that he did that, that was really special. Um, as a his live albums, I really recommend going on Spotify. There's two really good ones on, on Spotify.
0: Now, uh, one significant turning point in his life is when he got sick.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, John, once he um, left uh, Atlantic records and he was on David Geffen's label, asylum for a little while, but he, he kind of was much more comfortable living in Nashville, being a, uh, being just like one of the the songwriters in town and co-writing with people and just kind of, um, his his house would be open at all hours for anyone to stop by, and he would ha- get a turkey going at, at uh, like midnight, and all everyone coming out of their open mic nights would stop by and have turkey at his place. So he was living this bachelor life for a while, but he he met uh, Fiona in the late '80s, and and Fiona um, they they were t- t- together from. 1988 until this year and she became his manager eventually um but you know john had this huge life shift he was not 48 years old and had never had any kids or anything and and then fiona had um two boys together so john became a dad and right after that he got sick um so he like the year after 19 the the kids were like a year or two old anyway so so he didn't really uh, get a chance to settle in and enjoy that. He, he got really sick. He had stage four cancer. It was a certain kind of throat, throat cancer. And, um, and they he, cut a, a big chunk out of his uh, neck, basically. Out of his neck. Yeah, they cut a, they, and it took a year and a half for him to recuperate. And um, he didn't perform. And um, his voice changed. He didn't know if he was going to be able to perform uh, again. And so he, he booked a, a tiny show. He went on stage in Bristol, Tennessee, I think, and decided to just try it. And he said his 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 songs sounded all brand new again because he was singing in a new key, and it actually they sounded better. And the crowd was like like really there with him. There's a quote and,
0: in your story where the doctor was concerned that he wouldn't be able to sing again. He said, "Doctor, have you heard me sing?" Yeah.
2: He, <laughs> 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 um, and uh you know he didn't he didn't try to hide what was wrong with his neck or anything he said he you know people suggested he wear a turtleneck he said i don't get i don't care i just i i am who i am and and Kids were like fascinated with him, um, the way because he, he looked like no one else. He he was an incredible, like you just looked at him and you knew that he he was a special person. But
0: <laughs> well, tell me about his life by the time you got to him because he had kind of settled into being like the genius next door, just living in Nashville, where he was. By the way, you know I think probably most appreciated. I think that in the country world. Although he's appreciated a lot of places, but I think he was most understood in the country world, who really understood what was special about him. And there he was, like in the middle of Nashville. So, what was his life like by the time he got to him?
2: Um, well, I had seen him play at that theater, so like, I knew I knew that he he was playing like at least twelve hundred seat places. So he he had a great a great life. He would basically um, hang out during the week in Nashville shooting pool with his friends or going to have a drink, bar, this place, this pool hall, and or, or going to get meatloaf and just kind of putter around town all week. And then on Thursday nights, he would um, go to the airport and get on a plane and fly to a, a kind of um, a place like Portland, Maine, or like where I saw him or Madison, Wisconsin, all these places where there's like pockets of, of prime fans. And he would sell the theater out and he would drive 200 miles and play another show. And then he'd fly home on Sunday and then he would hang out all week. So it was like the best, he never had to go on like a, a huge marathon crazy tour. He, he had a schedule worked out and, and Fiona would go with him and they would go on these adventures together. And it was a really hard work from spending time with him and, and going, I've, I have gone on uh, those, t- those little weekend runs with him. And it's, it's so much work getting to the first place. Then you have to figure you have to go to the 200 miles and for him to perform at, at 72, 73 years old, after being through all those health uh, issues doing that every weekend is, it was amazing to, to watch and he would, his shows towards the end got more and more more intense like he uh came out with the album the tree of forgiveness and the, he had a song called uh when i get to heaven and he would uh he would do this amazing monologue about what he what he wants his afterlife to to be like he said he would buy yeah. he would open up a bar called the tree of forgiveness and check into a hotel and see his uh all his aunts and, and brothers and and then he would do um, a song called Lake Marie and he would, uh, he would dance off stage and um, the shows had electric portion. Then he would do a stripped all acoustic, a whole surprise set. And you didn't know what he was going to play and just, he'd end up dancing off stage and he would do paradise, which is a huge sing along of this song about his dad's home, that song about his dad's hometown.
1: When I was a child, my family would travel down to Western Kentucky
2: where my parents were born. And there's a backward so so anyway when i when i met him he was sort of like the it, he had it all worked out and he had two kids who were in their early 20s and he had the everything was working well with the label after a lot of turmoil after the death of his his manager Albanetta who who managed him for for decades and they didn't know what was going to happen and so and and his family took over the label and they got john to go back into the studio for the um it was the first time that he had he had written any new songs in in at least thirteen years that he'd, wow. so he so he went in and, and, and recorded his first album of new songs in thirteen years and basically he had all these these boxes of of little things he had jotted down in, and they were in like grocery boxes and stuff and and just kind of Fiona made him check into uh, the the Omni I think down in Nashville and just like. She convinced him to go in and he he checked in for four days and he put those lyrics together and ordered a bunch of room service and <laughs> came out with an with an Was it to try
0: album. to was, was it to try to break writer's block? Was that the idea?
2: Yeah, I think so. He had all this this genius stuff written down and but he just didn't um he could not bring himself to to finish a song and he said it was the scariest thing in the world. He said that, you know, he didn't want to compete with his old material. Um and he didn't. And, and he, you know, he wanted it to be really, really good. I, when I when I hung out with him for the first time, he had, he said that he had a lot of uh, of stress about that, about coming up with something that was worthy of of showing his fans, who he felt like he owed a lot to. Um, so he came out, went into that hotel, and came out four days later and had the majority of that record written. And he put that record out in um, twenty eighteen. And it went to number five on the billboard like the billboard two hundred and he and and he had never had a um he he never had a success anywhere near that. his first record when it came out, it went to like number one hundred and fifty or something <laughs> so this with, record with went, all those
0: classic songs on it yeah
2: yeah and and so this one went to number five the day it came out, I believe he played at Radio City. And uh, Sturgill Simpson opened for him and it was a sold out show. And that was the beginning of that tree of tree of forgiveness tour, which is the tour he was on all the way until his death. I, I just, um, you know, I was, t- I've been talking to his, his tour manager and Fiona and it just, it sounds like the show that he played in Paris, the final show on February 13th was one of his best shows and, and uh, he, w- he was so happy to play Paris and he'd always wanted to play and he never had played there. And um, so he played that show and he was surprised there was a sold out audience there for him. And it was, it was just a really special night. So that was, that, it was, everyone's happy that he got to do that. He'd always wanted to play Paris.
0: Yeah, for sure. And Patrick has an, another article coming out about, I guess, Prine's uh, last days. So look for that. And this has been today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks, Brian. Thanks. Appreciate it.
0: And we'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can now that you've got so much free time. But as always, thanks for listening. Please stay safe and we will see you next week.